God, we do pause and we thank you, Lord, that in your sovereign plan that no one uh, is here by accident or no one is here by chance. We thank you that, Lord, you have a purpose for us in this moment. You have a, a reason why we are gathered here to sit under your word. So, God, we pray that you would speak. Lord, we are listening. We're not listening to a flawed man. We are listening to your spirit and your word going forth. So, Lord, speak. We're listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just couldn't sleep. That's a phrase that most of us, if not all of us, have said at one time or another. In fact, according to uh, the Global Sleep Survey conducted in 2019, 62% of adults claim that they do not sleep as well as they want to. In fact, another survey that was conducted revealed that 68% of adults have at least one night every week in which they do not sleep well. Now, it's no surprise to us. We know that we tend to struggle to sleep from time to time. And what is far more interesting than that, and I think what's far more revealing, is the reason why people struggle to sleep. In fact, there are over 70 different sleep disorders out there from insomnia, sleep apnea, et cetera, et cetera. But there are other reasons why people don't sleep well. Maybe it's too much caffeine in the day, or you, know, you worked out too late in the day. Maybe the temperature's too hot or too cold. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety from work or relationships, or maybe just having young children causes you not to sleep well, right? All the young families know exactly what I mean by that. But identifying what, what causes someone not to sleep well is very revealing about who they are. It can reveal even what they value most. And when we get to Daniel chapter 2, we learn that the most powerful person in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, is struggling to sleep. In fact, in verse 1, it says that sleep left him. Now again, that's not interesting. Again, all of us have struggled sleeping from one time or another. But what is far more interesting and revealing is the reason why he could not sleep well. It's not because of a sleep disorder. It's not because of too much caffeine or working out too late in the day. It's not because of kids. What was causing King Nebuchadnezzar not to sleep well is because his spirit was troubled. In fact, literally in the Hebrew, it says that his heart was struck. In fact, that phrase that's used in the Hebrew is often used to describe a hammer that is striking a bell. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar, again, the most powerful person in the world, could not sleep because there was a disturbing, fear-provoking, anxiety-inducing hammer that repeatedly struck his heart. And it's all because of this dream that he had, that he didn't know the meaning of. He didn't quite understand what the dream was exactly referring to. He knew it had something to do with his empire, but he didn't know exactly what, and it was driving him mad. All right, this is the scene that's set for us in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 30 verses today and then spend next week looking at the, the second half of, of chapter 2. And I'm just going to walk through this passage and then save some practical application for the end. So the first thing I want to point out to us in verses 1 through 13 is we have a picture of frantic instability, frantic instability. As I've already mentioned, King Nebuchadnezzar was struggling to sleep due to this disturbing dream. 
But what he does next is quite surprising. He, he gathers all of the magicians, all of the sorcerers, all of the astrologers, and he wants them to interpret the meaning of his dream. Now, these individuals are the best of the best. They're supposedly trained in various methods in discerning the meaning of dreams. And the reason for that is because they believe that, that, the, that the Babylonian gods spoke to them predominantly in and through dreams. So everyone is assuming that the message behind this dream came from the Babylonian gods. So they believe that human wisdom was the solution because they failed to recognize that the message of this dream actually had a divine origin, a heavenly origin. But what is so shocking about what King Nebuchadnezzar does is the demand that he sets before them. He tells all of these astrologers and magicians and sorcerers, you need to not only tell me and interpret the dream for me, but you need to tell me the dream. I'm not going to tell you, you have to tell me what I dreamed of. Now that's an outrageous demand. That's very unreasonable. Why does King Nebuchadnezzar do that? Well, I think the reason for this frantic behavior is because King Nebuchadnezzar is starting to feel at the core of his being just how unstable his world truly is. And one of the things that we need to remember about Babylon and about King Nebuchadnezzar is just how powerful this empire was. This was the largest empire at this point in ancient history. They'd just uh, taken over Egypt, the superpower of the day, and they began to expand. They were expanding quite rapidly. They were taking over different lands, different entities, growing in power and influence. And with expansion comes strain. With growth comes stress. But also, what comes with expansion is insecurity. This is well recorded in ancient history of leaders who were paranoid. And that fits the description of King Nebuchadnezzar to the point where just one dream was driving him to extreme behavior. Now we have a picture here of what happens when power, insecurity, and fear all combined into one person in one point in time. Now what's interesting here, though, is that King Nebuchadnezzar had everything a person could dream of. He had power, he had riches, he had influence, he, he had fame, he had one of the biggest empires at this time. And yet, his behavior revealed a heart that was set on goals that in the long run, run would prove to be just mirages in the desert. That King Nebuchadnezzar lived entirely for this world. He lived entirely for building and advancing and protecting his own kingdom at all costs, to the point where any threat to his kingdom would throw him into a frenzy. His, his whole life was wrapped up in his kingdom. In fact, he is what St. Augustine claimed, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That King Nebuchadnezzar was restless, both physically from not sleeping, but also spiritually. He's exhausted. Now, that is something that I think you and I can relate to when it comes to King Nebuchadnezzar. Just on a small level, like on one hand, we may not be leading and ruling a world-dominating empire or a kingdom, but if we were really honest this morning, we do have times 
in which we are building and advancing and protecting our own kingdoms, the kingdom of self, the kingdom of me. And the reality is, is that the kingdom of self, we all have our own kingdom values. We have things that describe the culture of our kingdom, how we rule our own little kingdoms. Kingdom values like control or comfort or approval or pleasure or security or safety. We, we have all of these different values within the kingdom of self. And we covertly try to build, advance, and protect the kingdom of self at all costs. To the point that if there's a threat to our kingdom, we can act out in selfishly and sinful ways. We may not try to kill anybody like King Nebuchadnezzar, but we still exhibit extreme behavior in our own small ways. In fact, I'm convinced, and I know this to be true in my own life, I'm convinced that you can trace just about every one of our issues, every one of our struggles, every one of our sin issues back to trying to advance, protect, or advance our own kingdoms, the kingdom of self. It's why when we do have a threat against our kingdom that we respond sinfully. I mean, try to, try to unpack that in your own life. I mean, this is the reason why we snap at our spouses. This is the reason why we yell at our kids. This is the reason why we grumble and complain about work. This is the reason why we tend to run to different forms of escapism, whether that be social media or alcohol or sexual sin or entertainment or shopping or fill in the blank. It's connected to us trying to protect the kingdom of self. Now, why? What's underneath that? Well, what's underneath that is that we've allowed our hope to be set on something unstable, the kingdom of self, instead of setting our hope on the unchanging character of God and living for his kingdom. See, the kingdom of self, the kingdom of me, is very unstable. It's unsteady. It's insecure. To the point where all we need is one anxious thought, one fearful reality, one bad dream to shake us awake at the reality that the kingdom of self is actually built on sinking sand, that it will not last. It's unstable. And I think King Nebuchadnezzar was experiencing that right here in this moment. In fact, in verse 10, he has some of his wise men, the Chaldeans, confess to him that no person on earth can fulfill his demand, his outrageous demand. There's no sorcerer, there's no astrologer that can tell him his own dream and then interpret it. As a result, in verse 12, King Nebuchadnezzar is so angry that he commands all of the wise men to be destroyed. Now, this includes Daniel and his companions. So remember, they went through that, uh, that indoctrination program for three years to get to this place where they're serving the king in this role. And so in chapter 2, at the end of verse 13, Daniel enters the scene. And upon receiving this news of this death sentence, the way he responds is unbelievable. In fact, it's not just unbelievable, but it's very instructive for us today. In fact, I think the way that Daniel responds is a lesson for God's people in how we should respond in times of instability, in times of, of uncertainty, in times that are fearful. 
So I want to just point out a couple of, of responses that David, or I'm sorry, that Daniel exhibits here. The first response that we notice from Daniel is that he does not panic. Okay? Just to state the obvious. There's no reference to fear or to being afraid here or anxiety on Daniel's part. He's calm. He's collected. He doesn't run for the border. He doesn't run for the hills. But nor does he just kind of sit around and wait to die. Daniel's activity, his response here, is filled with purpose and intentionality. Notice in verse 14, he, he goes to Arioch, who is the man tasked to killing all of the wise men. And the text says that Daniel is prudent. He's discreet. This means that he acted with appropriateness, with good taste. Daniel acts wisely here by tactfully conversing with Arioch and, and tries to ask him, why is this so urgent? What, what's going on here? So he tries to learn the situation, and upon hearing about this death sentence, he immediately schedules a meeting with the king so that he could interpret his dream. Right? Notice the purpose, notice the intentionality. But before he gets to the king, notice what he does first. And this is really instructive for us. He gathers with his friends to pray. He gathers with his fellow teenagers at the time to seek mercy from God. This is an amazing picture of young men who are united in prayer, demonstrating their dependency upon God rather than human wisdom when their lives were on the line. And of course, we learn in the story that after they pray, God reveals the meaning of the dream to Daniel. But notice what happens next. Instead of Daniel rushing off to the king, what does he do in verses 19 through 23? He blesses God. He gives thanks to God. He praises God for him revealing the dream. And then, of course, he goes to Arioch, who brings him before the king, and Daniel speaks with boldness. Now, the question I want us to consider this morning is, how is Daniel able to respond in this way? Like, when you actually try to put yourself in his shoes, this is an unbelievable response. Would you have responded this way if you had this death sentence hanging over you? I mean, Daniel responds calmly, prudently, wisely, tactfully, prayerfully, and boldly. But why? What was enabling him to do so? It's because he trusted in God. It's because of God. Remember, the whole meaning, the whole purpose of the book of Daniel is not to put Daniel on a pedestal, but it's to learn about God. It's to trust in Daniel's God. So the question is, is what do we know about God in Daniel 2? How does Daniel reveal God that enabled him to respond in this way, right? Because in order for us to respond similarly, the way that Daniel did, we have to understand Daniel's God. So three things I want to point out about Daniel's prayer in particular that reveals kind of his theology, his understanding of God that enabled this kind of response. Okay, here's the first thing I want to point out is God's eternal wisdom. Notice in Daniel's prayer, right from the get-go, verse 20, he acknowledges that wisdom and might belong to God. Okay, so he identifies that what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted, what Daniel and his friends needed, only God possessed. 
He had wisdom in order for them to interpret this dream. I love Romans 11 verse 33 that declares, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. Look, wisdom belongs to God. It's why we're told in James 1 to seek God in prayer for wisdom and he will give generously to all. It's why in verse 30 here at the end that Daniel gives credit to God who gave him the wisdom in order to interpret the dream. Daniel didn't have that wisdom. This actually belongs to God. A.W. Tozer, I think, provides a, a helpful description of God's wisdom. It says that wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. That wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. That's what God has. That God is that in his wisdom, in the way that he exercises his wisdom. Now, how comforting is that? Like, as God's people, that's exactly what we need God to be. Like, as we live in an unstable and uncertain world, it is so comforting to know that we have a God who is in heaven who's not winging it up there. We have a God in heaven who's not guessing at what the right plan should be for our lives. No, his wisdom is perfect, which means his plan is flawless. Now, on the other side of that, the reality is is that we go through seasons in life, we go through difficulty where we don't know what God is doing, right? We go through those things quite often where we're almost confused, where we almost utter the words, God, what are you doing? And the reason for that is because we're finite. Our perspective, our wisdom is limited. We're standing way too close to the picture where we can't stand back far enough to see the end from the, from the beginning like God who is infinite in his wisdom, infinite in his knowledge. See, God has the perfect view. God has the perfect vision. God sees the end from the beginning. You and I do not. And so that's why we're oftentimes left confused and, and bewildered at what God is up to. But what that does, that shouldn't discourage us. That should foster a posture of trust. That should help us to understand, I don't see well enough. I need to trust in the only one who does. In fact, I think this is what led to Proverbs chapter 3, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Daniel perfectly embodied this proverb here. We don't find Daniel sitting around, hanging out with his friends, trying to figure out why God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to give this command to kill all the wise men. They're not, they're not pontificating the purpose behind all of this. No, we see Daniel and his friends trusting in God, not being wise in their own eyes, not leaning on their own understanding, but acknowledging God, fearing the Lord, and trusting in him. Why? 
because all wisdom belongs to him. So that's the first thing that we notice about Daniel's God. The second thing, though, equally important, is we notice that Daniel acknowledges God's boundless, limitless sovereignty. Verse 21, Daniel declares that God rules and reigns and controls time and seasons and earthly rulers. Like God governs every event in human history. Every era is under the rule and the matchless sovereignty of God. And he and he alone can change them at will. That's unbelievable about God when we think about his sovereignty and the detail of his control. I think this is why Daniel was able not to panic. He knew God was in control. He knew God was behind everything. That as powerful as King Nebuchadnezzar was, and he was powerful, he only had that power because God gave him that power. God gave him that position I love Psalm 115, which points to God's sovereignty in comparison to worthless idols. Listen to this. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. But then verse 9 says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Do you see the comparison? There's not only this comparison, though, between God and his sovereignty and worthless idols, but there's a profound connection here. The connection is in verse 3 and verse 9. Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's completely sovereign. He's in control of all things, which enables verse 9 to be true, that God is a help to his people. God is a shield to his people. Do you see the connection there? The connection is, is that the extent by which God can help his people is fully dependent on the extent to that which God is sovereign over. Like in other words, if God is not completely sovereign, if he's limited in his control and his power, he cannot be a present help to his people in time of need. But if he is limitless in his sovereignty. If he is boundless in his power and his control, there's nothing God can't do. God can be a present help in time of need for his people. He can be that shield and that help. Look, I think this is the characteristic of God that we're most confronted with in times of uncertainty, in times of instability, in times of difficulty. That theologically, you might believe that God is sovereign, but deep down, are you convinced that he is in control of all things, including every detail of your life? Like, I think we get tempted here, like in the midst of the chaos, just to, just to make sense of it all, just to make sense of, of why suffering is happening and, and why things feel so uncertain and unstable. We're tempted to think that maybe God dropped the ball up in heaven. Maybe God kind of took a nap in his own way and let some things slide a little bit. All right, like, like what about you? Like when you feel, when you sense that fear is taking control, 
when anxiety is increasing, doubt is growing, is it because you're not fully convinced that God is sovereign over every detail of your life? Is that the reason? Or, or maybe, maybe you would say, no, no, pastor, I believe God is sovereign. I believe he's in control of all things. But maybe deep down, you're not convinced that his sovereign plan is good. Maybe you don't believe that he's perfectly wise, and so his plan isn't for your best. Maybe that's the issue. That's why fear and doubt and anxiety is growing. See, Daniel believed both. He held on to both that God is perfectly wise, that his plan is flawless, and that God is sovereign and in control. And holding on to both in times of uncertainty and instability guards our hearts from fear and anxiety and doubt. In fact, it fosters a deep trust in the unchanging character of God. That's what we need. That's what enables the type of response for Daniel. But then there's another characteristic, though, that's equally important here in Daniel's prayer, and that is God's intervening personal activity, right? Like, it's great God's sovereign. It's great he's wise, but if he's far from his people, then what good are these attributes? And yet verse 22 says that God intervenes by revealing the deep and hidden things, that God knows all. He knows both the darkness and the light, but he doesn't hold that knowledge to himself only. He reveals, according to his sovereign will and purpose, to his people. And here he reveals it to Daniel, the, the meaning of this dream. Now, what's amazing is that these three attributes of God are used in Daniel's life, not as just theological truths to affirm, but we can see here that Daniel takes these truths and he smothers his heart with them. Daniel refused to keep these truths about God a safe distance from his head to his heart. He's taking these and he's trying to, to throw them into his heart so that he can hold on to them. And, and Daniel, I think, did that because Daniel knows, just like you know, that something will capture your heart. Something will take hold of your desires and your affections. But Daniel did not want it to be fear. He did not want it to be anxiety. He did not want it to be doubt. He wanted the truth about God to capture his heart. And he allowed that to be true, which ended up, it put him in a position of trust before God who is unchanging. You can see this comparison very clearly between Daniel and the wise men of Babylon, verse 11. Verse 11, these wise men say to the king, he says, the thing, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. This is so different than Daniel's response about Yahweh, about God, who has perfect wisdom, who is boundless in his sovereignty, and a God who is near and active and intervening in the lives of his people. See, this is the kind of God that we need in times of uncertainty and in times of instability in order to generate the type of response that Daniel shows us. Well, we then find in verses 25 through 30, Daniel stands before the king. Daniel has a conversation with him that's also challenging. King Nebuchadnezzar asks him, hey, can you interpret my dream? And he says, well, king, there's actually no wise man, there's no astrologer, there's no magician who can interpret your dream, but there is a God in heaven 
who is able. And then he tells them that God and God alone has revealed the meaning of his dream, which we'll get to next week. It's an amazing story. There's lots, lots to learn, lots of practical applications for us. And that's what I want to do. The last couple of minutes that we have together, I want to pull out just some practical principles that I think impact us on a daily basis. They're, not everything can or should be applied, especially when you look at the genre that we're in of historical narrative, but there are some helpful things. And so today, as we close, I want to frame these application points around the concept of instability. Okay, again, Daniel 2 is a picture of unstable times in Babylon. Okay, we have a disturbing dream. We have an angry and frantic monarch who's just loose. And then we have this very serious death sentence that's creating instability for all. And look, instability is something that you and I can relate well with, can't we? I mean, just look at the last couple of years, whether that's instability on a macro level at what's happening in our world or instability happening on a micro level in our own personal lives. We know well what instability feels like. And so the question I want us to kind of consider this morning is how does God use instability for the good of his people? Okay, three things, three things that I think God does. Number one, I think God uses instability to remove the illusion of us actually being in control. There is a trap that is so easy to fall into that I'm convinced almost every single one of us falls into this trap at one point or another where we think to ourselves, if I can just organize my life a certain way, if I can just plan it out well enough, if I can make good decisions, then I can basically control the outcomes in my life. We can fall in that. It's so easy to fall into that trap. And yet the reality is, is that times of instability and chaos, times of, of uncertainty, provide for us fresh moments of realization that we're not actually in control of anything in our lives. And yet we think we are. And we talk like we are. We, we say, I'm going to go do this and this today, or I'm going to do that tomorrow. Or Look, we're not in control of our lives like, we can't even control what happens tomorrow. We can't even control what happens this afternoon. And this is what James tells us in the New Testament. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're not in control, and yet we so often think that we are. And it's because control is one of our kingdom values, the kingdom of self. And so, look, on one hand, yes, be responsible. Like, be wise. Like, be prudent. Make good decisions. But listen to me. You are not sovereign. You are not self-sufficient. You are not completely autonomous. You are not in control. You don't control all things. You don't control your spouse. You don't control your kids. You don't control what happens out in the world. You don't control if you live tomorrow or not. And yet the reality is, is we think that we do. We think that we are these little King Nebuchadnezzars 
ruling and reigning our own kingdoms, that if we position our kingdoms just right, if we protect it just right because I'm in control, then everything will be just fine. And when we experience a threat to our kingdoms, that's when our world tends to crumble because we think we're in control. We think that we're sitting on the throne. And we're most susceptible to this when things are going fine, when things are stable, when things seem to be going smoothly, and yet the reality is we are not in control. Look, you are one phone call away from your life being entrenched in instability. You're one phone call away from the doctor, one phone call away from the teacher, one phone call away from your employer. You're one car accident away. Look, we're not in control. And I'm saying this to you this morning, not to scare you, not to encourage you to live irresponsibly. I'm trying to help you understand the intimate connection between thinking that you're in control and the tendency we have to advance and build and protect the kingdom of self. They are profoundly linked together, and they are destructive. And so times of instability are actually gifts from God. Like, God gives us those times of uncertainty to kind of wake us up to the reality that I'm not in control, and that frees us to live lives that are fully dependent upon God, to live lives of humility, to live lives that are surrendered to the only one who is in control, who is the unchanging and constant God. And so change the optics of instability. I know they're scary. I know they're hard. But God uses them as a gift to remove the illusion that we're in control. So that's the first thing to point out. The second thing, though, I think also important, God uses instability to reveal the condition of our faith, that he uses times of uncertainty to show us who we actually are. Like, you can claim to have deep faith, wonderful. You can even believe that you have deep faith, great, but it only takes a trial that shakes the metaphorical ground beneath you, that actually reveals the condition of your faith. See, I think trials and uncertain times, they, I think they're more of a revealer than a builder of character. And they're so helpful. This is why this is a gift, again, because we tend to overestimate how strong we are spiritually. We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt of how close we are to God, but not other people only ourselves. And so instability kind of shakes us up and reveals what we actually trust. So instability almost becomes a classroom for us, and we're the students. And we need to come in there and approach God, the teacher, if you will, and have the posture of saying, what do I really trust in? What is the condition of my heart? What is the condition of my faith in him? By looking at what do you run to when you do experience times of instability. So instability, they remove the illusion that we're in control, reveals our true faith, but thirdly here, I think that they renew our trust in God. How? Well, by reminding us that God is the only constant in this world. Instability makes that abundantly clear, that God is the only one worthy of our trust and our 
allegiance. Hebrews 13.8 says it this way, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Look, don't waste your instability. Don't waste your times of uncertainty. They either draw you away from the Lord or they can draw you closer to the Lord. That even in times of uncertainty where it feels like everything is going crazy, there is a constant in your life. There is one who is unchanging, and it is God. And he becomes the floor beneath us, creating stability so that we can respond in the same way as Daniel. Ann Voskamp describes it this way. She says that there is unwavering peace today when an uncertain tomorrow is trusted with an unchanging God. Love that. Well, Daniel's an example of this. Well, one of my favorite verses in Daniel chapter 2 is actually verse 28. After Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar that no man can interpret your dream, he then tells him this. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That is such a profound statement. That is such a, a powerful truth to cling to in times of uncertainty. And I love how Daniel contrasts before King Nebuchadnezzar the worthlessness of the Babylonian gods compared to Yahweh, who holds all power, all wisdom, and all control. One commentator put it this way, that there is a God in heaven as against man-made gods and deified men is the supreme theme of the book of Daniel, even as it is the cardinal principle of the Bible. So church, here's the comforting message for us today. There is a God who is in heaven. And this God is able to be called upon by his people, and he can give us grace and strength and wisdom far beyond what human resources can provide. That no matter how unstable life feels like at times, how uncertain, maybe you're going through a season of just a bunch of unknowns, you have a God who can do all things. You have a God where there is nothing too hard for him, and he supplies everything that we need. What a powerful truth to rehearse. There is a God who is in heaven, right? Because instability tries to convince us your God's left you. Your God is no longer, your God's not here. But then again, there's another truth that might be even more powerful in times of instability. Not just that there's a God who's in heaven, but there's a God who's near. There's a God who's right here. And that's true because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ got up on a cross and he died for the sins of the world. He paid our penalty, provides forgiveness of sins and eternal life and his own spirit to live within his own people so that you are never alone. That's something Daniel didn't have. He had the God who's in heaven, but we have a God who's in heaven and a God who is right here living and empowering his people. So let me encourage you, if you're going through a difficult time, a time of instability, seek God's presence, not answers. Seek God's comforts, not clarity. Seek God's peace, not control. Because we have a God who's near. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we do praise you for your word. God, we thank you that you give us exactly what we need when we need it because your word is alive and active. Lord, thank you that there was a purpose for us being here today, sitting under your word. God, I pray that you would fulfill that purpose by your spirit 
that you would take the seed that's planted, that you would bear fruit in each of our lives. Lord, some of us need to deepen our trust in you. Some of us need to keep our eyes off of our circumstances and place them upon you. So Lord, by your spirit, would you conform us and mold us into the image of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.